And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 26, 2022. Tahia DeVisher is a Banting Research and Teaching Fellow at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Forestry. She studies how to manage forests and other green spaces in and around cities to support human well-being and build social ecological resilience to climate change. She is also interested in developing practical strategies to strengthen the relationship between urbanites and nature. In past work with the Stockholm Environmental Institute, Tahia led research to support climate change and adaptation working with local communities, NGOs, and governments in more than 20 countries across the global South. In most of her projects, she applies interdisciplinary approaches by integrating methods from quantitative modeling to participatory mapping and quality assessment. Tahia has a PhD in ecosystem science from the University of Oxford. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Tahia. We are delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you, Eva. Thanks for having me here. Your discipline of urban forestry, how did you get into the profession? And to be in one or to be at the best school in the world for urban forestry at the University of British Columbia? For me, it happened about five years ago when I moved to Canada. I was studying and working in the UK prior to moving here to Vancouver. And my background was not in urban forestry. I studied ecosystem science, focused on ecosystem-based adaptation mainly. How do we manage and um, connect with nature in a way that we can build resilience to climate change? And a lot of my work prior to joining the University of British Columbia, I used to work with the Stockholm Environment Institute in Oxford. And I also did my, my PhD at the University of Oxford. Looking at that, you know, that was my field, that, that was my topic. And I was working in large rural forest landscapes like the Amazon, the Congo, I was in Borneo. And it's really when I delve into these topics that I started getting very interested in social ecological systems and how people interact with forests and how you can build resilience through strengthening these connections and taking a systems approach. And I think my interest to 
studying urban forests started there because I realized that in cities, the connections between people and forests are very close. And also the feedbacks, you know, are, are shorter. So you can hopefully make a difference if you make an intervention that can have an impact on the system, you can see the effects of that intervention sooner. So I got interested in working in cities because I thought if I can invest in research that, that has implications for decision-making or for policy, maybe I can make a difference in the context of cities. And when I moved to, to Vancouver, I was lucky to meet uh, Cecil Konanendike and he and I started working together from the get-go. Um, so now it has been five years working uh, with him and then the lab um, and the community of urban foresters that is growing very rapidly at the University of British Columbia. So it's really a good place to be because um, every year we get more people, new scholars and also more students joining the program. I think the research that's being done there is cutting edge and everybody wants to hear what's coming from the University of British Columbia. I know we do when we're doing podcasts. We look, Hal and I will say, okay, who are we going to get from the University of British Columbia this time? Because there's always some exciting uh, developments that are coming out of your university. Yeah, absolutely. And it's becoming really interdisciplinary, which I, I love. I, I am an interdisciplinary scientist myself. And yeah. I think yeah. that if we want to solve complex problems, we need to take a multifaceted approach where we look at it from different angles. So I really value the fact that we are opening, we're creating an environment that is very open and inclusive for people from different disciplines to come together. Of course, there are challenges linked to that, but I really think that that's the way forward. I wonder for our listeners, if you could give us your definition of resilience, because I have a feeling we're going to use that word a fair bit today. It's a term that has been evolving since its inception. And, you know, the way it used to be understood at the very beginning uh, was more like in the engineering context, the capacity of a system to bounce back or more, more so measured by the time a system required to bounce back after a stress. Mm -hmm. And then when it started to be more and more used in, in ecology, it became more about the capacity of a system to recover after stress. And then over time, uh, this capacity was studied even further um, to kind of really try to add qualities to that. What does it really mean, <laughs> the capacity to recover and the capacity to adapt to stress? And also the idea of like, you know, coming back to the, to the initial state, what does that initial state mean? How do you measure that? And you know that is defined by the ability of a system to maintain its identity or its function and the components that make up the system. But then like over time, we have realized that sometimes we don't want that. We, we don't wanna stay in a certain state because maybe that state is undesirable. And maybe what we want is actually to transform the system. And so the word resilience is started to not only look at adaptation, you know, like that coping capacity and recovery after stress, but also perhaps the ability to transform into a more desirable state. So it's a term that has been evolving. And I would say what is really important when you're like studying resilience is to have a first basic understanding of resilience of what, 
you know, what are you looking at? What are the boundaries of your system? What's the scale that you are going to consider? Could be a city, but it could also be a person, <laughs> could be a tree, or it could be a community of trees and a community of people interacting, you know, and that's system. So that is the what. Right. And then resilience to what? What stress are we talking about? Is it climate change? It's never only climate change. There are multiple stresses interacting with each other. We have seen more and more community, sure. um, you know, disturbances. And so it's is the stress to climate change and development trajectories and maybe an economic crisis and a pandemic, which is what cities are facing today. Right. So let's extend that then to the uh, incorporation, or I guess we might call it uh, an input of the enlightened ecosystem. How do cities help themselves to become more resilient through healthy ecosystems? Yeah, we could frame it this, uh, this discussion like this, and you could understand a city as an ecosystem or as a social ecological right. system, which is uh, the term I, I use in my research. So a social ecosystem. A social ecological system where you have social processes and ecological processes that are interacting. And you would say that through this interaction, you are able to build resilience to multiple stressors. In my case, I one of the stressors I consider in my research is the future impacts of climate change. But I always consider other stressors as well for, for the reasons I, I just shared. Right, yeah. And I guess there's the future concerns and then arguably issues that have already arrived. Absolutely, in terms absolutely. Of, so you yeah. could have, you could divide this into like the, the more intrinsic stressors that are part of the vulnerability of this social ecological system, which have been perhaps shaped by the way that the city has developed, you know, the legacies of the past and the development trajectory of that city. And then you may have more like external stressors that can be brought by globalization when you have trade that will be affecting your city or climate change, which also is a global phenomenon that has an impact on your city, on your system. When you look at a socio-ecological system, do you go back to its original origins to actually help you to define or to come up with a solution that may have been disrupted earlier in its development? I, I think it's very important to look at the past to understand the present. And we do. I look at the legacies. I look at the past policies that have influenced the development of a city. I, I look at the trends of, you know, over time, for example, how green cover has changed over time in a city. But at the same time, one thing that I'm fascinated by is that cities are places of innovation, places where you can be very creative, more so than in some of the rural systems where I've worked before that are very large and sometimes processes are very slow. In cities, I see the dynamics are so much faster. So with that, I also believe that cities are places that can create the future they want. And, but you need to be bold and courageous to really think, okay, you know, what do we want to create? How do we want to proceed? And I, that's why I feel like there is a lot of very interesting questions that you can ask in the context of cities to build resilience because your research can actually really see some impacts perhaps even in your lifetime <laughs> uh, and and so 
I think that what it's very important to understand the past and how different cultures have interacted in your city, policies have impacted your city, green cover um, changes in your city and how the urban forces evolved. I also think it's re really important to recognize that cities are agents of change and that they, they can create a future because, because there is this interaction and because um, there is also a mandate for cities to do that. You know, I'm thinking of Philadelphia in particular, where our William Penn, Penn's Woods, Pennsylvania, uh, the green state, but also the layout of the city, making sure that we had parks every so many blocks or within certain confines. And then I think of the layers of immigrants that came in who brought their agricultural backgrounds with them, and of course not finding that within the context of the city, maybe taking a little parcel and putting their little mark on it and showing people something that they've never seen before. And I'm thinking of the Italian community in particular, bringing in the pollarding of our trees on our main streets. You know, the whole idea of regenerative uh, pruning and making sure that you know it looks a certain way but stays a certain size. And all of those factors to me help for us to understand resilience, but also where that whole community has kind of disappeared, we've actually lost some of those, those wonderful techniques that we learned earlier or the influences they had in certain areas and then they moved out into another area altogether. And there's there's I can go through a whole grouping of different ethnicities. And here in the United States, in, in our particular city of Philadelphia, there was a lot of agricultural connection between um, New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania's agriculture and how that creates uh, a, a city that is close to connections of nature. But how do we bring that back when it disappears? How, who's who's going to bring it back? And uh, organizations like yours are the ideal type of organization that can actually reconnect these communities back into the city, almost I think like of crocheting, you know, you, you bring a hook and you bring that yarn and you bring it back into the middle of the city and, and create that piece that's missing. So many wonderful elements in, in your sharing, Eva, when we're thinking about resilience in terms of like the different elements that could help build resilience in, in a city. You know, when, when you share about like multiple cultures, you're really talking about one key element to build resilience in a city, which is diversity. You know, how do we encourage diversity? And this is a diversity of trees, you know, and tree species, because we want to build a system that is resilient to pests and diseases. So if you have a monoculture, you really have a very vulnerable urban forest there because you they may all trees may get affected if a specific species uh, is pest or disease attacks but if you have multiple species they have different uh, responses so you want that but at the same time you want to create uh, a city that is diverse because it attends different cultures it attends different backgrounds and different people from, you know, different ethnic groups, but also different ways of engaging with nature can connect with nature when there is a diverse space. And I've seen that, for example, in, in Maple Ridge, a city that I've been studying at about an hour from Vancouver here, that people of different ages and of different backgrounds, they use forest fragments. I've been studying forest fragments there in right. very 
ways. And, right. you know, you, you need that diversity so that everyone can feel connected to the urban forest. The other, the other thing that you want to maintain another principle or enabling factor for resilience is uh, connectivity. And that, that is the connection between, you know, people and their forests, but it's also the connection between green spaces or between forest fragments in a city so that there is mobility, you know, uh, that is enabled through, through these corridors in, in the city. And connectivity has been studied in other ecosystems as well, like also rural that are, play an important role when you think of your system as a, as a network. You'd want the system to be connected and you don't want only one bridge or one connection, you want multiple connections because if one fails, there is a different path. Right. So that's another element. And another one is learning. It's like, how do we observe the feedbacks? How do we monitor change? And this is why it's important to look at the past as well, so that we are learning and learning in a, in a way that is a bit more systematic. I think like a lot of times when we develop urban forest management plans, we, we really think about, okay, where do we want to plant the maintenance of our trees? But we, we forget about monitoring and how important it is to actually have a very systematic observation of your, the health of your urban forest and also the way people are engaging with your forest over time, because it's through that learning that we can get better at adapting at becoming more resilient. That's something that our, our former guest talked about. The monitoring was is critical for the whole health of the system. And you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, you can't just walk away. You have to come back and look at it again and again and again. Absolutely. And, and as you do, you start also developing, which is, I think, another element that is not spoken so explicitly in the resilience thinking literature, but I think it's very important. And I think now it's gaining more attention, but it's building a relationship with our environment and our urban forest. And I think that's where human resilience will also be strengthened because as we build a relationship with our trees, our parks, our community, we start caring. We start caring more about it. So we, we start doing something about, about it as well. So this relationship building, I feel is also very important for us humans, like social resilience, in terms of being better equipped to, to cope with stress. And um, we have seen it with the pandemic, right? Like the, sure. the, the green spaces, urban forests have become, the connection with them have become paramount to our ability to cope with isolation, yes. <laughs> um, cope with um, stress and uncertainty. And we found a lot of solace and ability to to build resilience individual resilience in this case to to that stress yeah it seems like that engagement really came during the pandemic to a certain extent because people realized that they had to shut their laptops and walk away from their phone and uh, get out there for a uh, nature walk or a forestry bath for mental health i was reading some of your documents on on mental health and how not being in a green space can actually really hinder our health overall, starting with the mind and then going from there. Absolutely. I think like what happened in 2020 and, and the way I'm seeing mental health deteriorating globally has really sparked interest in me in understanding more the, 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 
the ability of nature to contribute to to health in a more holistic way. Not you know sometimes we think of human health as at the, the end of the the end of the process. We we think about oh you have a health problem. How do we do to treat this? But I think like really thinking about right. human health in a more holistic way, starting from the beginning of the process, the prevention is really important. And not only thinking about health as like physical health, which is sometimes the, the go-to <laughs> because we can see it because it's more tangible, but really considering all of the elements of human health, the, the physical health, mental health, and social health social well-being so really like thinking of well-being more more broadly there in, in the role that nature can play in contributing to human well-being which is part of the building resiliency you know but i i think that all needs to be more connected so on the heels of that you just put on or somewhat recently put on a conference oh yeah that's on right forest therapy can you tell us about that the speakers looked very <laughs> intriguing Oh, it was a wonderful, wonderful event. Um, so I got more and more interested on forest and nature therapy. And last year I certified as a forest therapy guide. And through that journey, uh, which has been in parallel to my research, but now it's somewhat converging, I got exposed to different schools of thought around forest therapy. The notion of forest bathing started in Japan in the 80s when the country was modernizing right. and going through a big transition and this, the governments arise in mental health disorders, um, very large case, many cases of depression, suicidal rates. And sure, so they turned to the scientists for, for help and then they started working together and developed as a, a way for people to have experiences in the forest that can help them restore mental fatigue and reduce stress. And this led into more and more research done by uh, academia in Japan, looking at the, the contributions of nature to human health, starting with mental health, but also physic physiological health. And now they found like, for example, the fact that, you know, when we are in nature, when we are in forests, we are exposed to volatile organic compounds that can be beneficial for our immune system, like phytoncytes. And this, mm. we inhale phytoncytes. What wow. they have discovered is that they can boost our natural cure cells. And with that, we become stronger to face diseases like cancer. So this has sparked a lot of interest in the government and they have invested more in, in these practices of forest bathing, which is um, in Japanese, Shinrin-yoku is the idea of bathing in phytoncytes, bathing in, in these volatile organic compounds. And that started in the 80s and now it's kind of gaining a lot of momentum in the Western world. And there are now schools of forest therapy uh, that have been certifying guides throughout North America and, and Europe, like the Association for Nature and Forest Therapy, where, where I certify, but there are many, many others that have started to do this. So as I saw that people got more interested in this topic and there are different schools of thought and different experiences, Japan obviously has decades of experience. Also, um, South Korea is like very invested and has been doing research on forest therapy for many uh, decades. I thought, well, it would be fantastic to bring all of these actors together and have a conversation mm -hmm. um, and, and learn more because we, we need more research on this, um, especially 
um, in North America and Europe, Latin America, we have not done much research yet on the effects of spending time in nature, but also not only on our human health, but also in terms of increasing our connectedness to the more than human world. So the conference was really an invitation to have a very open conversation, very inclusive. So we had people from different parts of the world joining and sharing their experiences, their research, but also their practice, you know, what they have seen um, in the field. So guides were also there sharing and and also people that were talking more about the institutionalization of this practice and if we need standards, international standards, and how do we make sure that the quality and best practice is, is kept and respected. The program that you just did that with University of British Columbia, do you see that being something that might a program that might get repeated at some point? You mean the conference? The conference, yeah. Yeah, we would love to do it every two years if possible okay. and, and repeat it. Our colleagues, you know, partners that supported the conference may also host it next time. I don't know. But in, in UBC, there is definitely interest in, in this topic. And um, I, I would love to see another one happening. The one that, that you've already done, was that a streamed event? Initially, we wanted to have a hybrid conference, but given the situation and that it was really international and there's limitations still around COVID, we decided to just do an online conference this time. So we, we streamed it, okay. yes, and people joined from different parts of the world. So we had to account for different time zones and we had a, we had a schedule yeah. that was a little bit unusual, but we, we started early and we continued very late for Pacific time so that people from Europe or from Asia could, could join. Sure. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how those hybridized conferences work out. I think they're evolving and I think we're all getting used to getting up at 2.30 in the morning to see your favorite speaker. Yeah, that's true. It might also might work if you had two different places in the world that were delivering the conference. In other words, maybe a place in Europe and then in British Columbia where one will pick up when the other one's going to sleep so that you have a 24-hour program yeah. and you meet for with everybody. And it just makes it much easier from a time zone standpoint. And it would be probably one of the first of its kind to be crossover in two different countries and two different places but still be the same conference, just carrying hmm. over the, the speakers so you can accommodate a larger audience. That's a great idea. I am just so impressed with your background and the work that you're doing with people for them to have a better understanding of how green spaces influence us as human beings. You know, we put that off as a secondary thing. You know, that's a that's a luxury. It's not a luxury. It is it is a vital part of the human psyche. And people just don't understand that. And I, I do believe the forest bathing is critical for human health. And with our mental health issues here in the United States, we need so much more of this. We just need so much more of this and so much more awareness around how green affects us in a positive way. Even if we're just sitting there passively, looking at the pond with the trees around it, or looking at, you know, sitting there in the little town center with the trees over, over top and playing checkers or playing chess, just being in that space 
brings you health that you're not aware of. I really care about what you're sharing, Eva, and it totally resonates with me. I've seen it also with my students when I teach urban forest and human well-being, and they experience that themselves and the impact they share afterwards with the class, with myself. It's inspiring, you know, it's just like, you know that we need more of that. And it also kind of started, for me, it became a bit of a different line of research, yes, but I still see the connections with, you know, building resilience to multiple stresses and the importance to feel, to have good health for the health of our planet. It's one thing. Everything is is connected. Yeah. All connected. All connected. The other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking is the fact that, you know, we're talking about corridors, green corridors within the city. The fact that animals are actually part of our good health too, because, you know, when you, when a the child sees an animal, they get all excited and they laugh. They they see something that they normally don't see. I know when I'm out for my walk and I see the deer with their babies and how they're, they come right up to you, it just blows me mm-hmm. away. And I, I want to be out there all the time because they're there. And this is, yeah. in an ur- this is in an urban area, a suburban area where I see them all the time and they come right up to my door. Um, and <laughs> That's part of that green connection, too, that we actually are connected with our fellow animals. I know people don't like to think that we have fellow animals, but we we are an animal ourselves. So being able to being able to be connected with them, I think, is really critical. You're making me think of a framework, right, that is really explicit about is the One Health framework that acknowledges the connections between wildlife and biodiversity, human health and climate change and how everything, the health of the planet is one thing where all of this is connected. For me, the other thing that comes, that shows up when I hear you sharing about is the need to understand green quality and experience in green forests beyond just saying, okay, how is the green cover distributed in a city? We need to also start like studying what kind of green cover, what, what are the qualities that we want to experience? And some time ago, like last year, I started doing some more research in trying to understand these nuances a little bit, mainly for mental health and, you know, stress reduction. But kind of like building on a theory that exists, was two theories kind of like together. One is the perceived sensory dimensions that was developed by Grant and Stig's daughter in the Scandinavian countries. And, and then the idea of a triangle of supportive environments. So that when we are exposed to nature, depending on how we are feeling or depending on our experienced well-being, what we need and the engagement that we want to have with nature may be different. And so what the triangle of supportive environment says is that when our level of well-being is low, maybe what we want to see in nature, what we need is more to do with dimensions of serenity. These are the perceived sensory dimensions. Serenity, being able to feel like we are in our refuge, you know, feeling safe, place where we can see, connect with the wild, but not necessarily interact with other people, just be on, on our own. It's more like inward looking. Well, if we are in a place where we feel very high performance, you know, very high on our experience well-being, we may look at activities that we can do to socialize in nature. We may want to be engaged with culture and music in nature or doing 
some kind of sports with other people in nature or, or have presence of views that we can do, do and like engage with, with nature in, in a different way. It's a bit more active and a bit more outward looking in this case. So just really understanding these differences, I started like mapping <laughs> the qualities of green space in cities based on these features to really understand, okay, you know, how is nature distributed that is of restorative nature and who has access to that kind of nature and see people that, you know, would rank high in terms of, well, there are different ways of measuring social vulnerability. In, in Canada, there are some indexes that we can use to identify highly vulnerable groups and see if highly vulnerable groups have access to restorative nature now because sometimes they are the ones that need it the most. Right. So it's a different, you know, yeah. it's kind of really looking at not only a blanket, the green cover blanket, but it's really understanding, okay, what experiences do we want in nature and how can we create those experiences? How can we improve these experiences in the context of cities? You know, it makes me think, I have a family member who for about eight years lived in a certain American West Coast city that shall go unnamed. But I remember spending a lot of time on Google Maps and Google Earth looking for the green spaces in this unnamed West Coast city. But I was surprised and amazed and felt bad because I was not seeing green space of any, any significant size that could handle the populace. Now I'm connecting one dot there is that along with it being so built, so highway dependent, it has an enormous homeless community. So not only is nature gone missing, but you're getting a section of humanity that at very best might have access to a little bit of scrubby brush or, or a weed tree and, and little else. So I guess all this to ask about the challenges of large scale redesign as we try to get canopy restored or in some cases building parks into places that have never had them before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the first step is like, how do we create the green space or even better, how do we maintain the forest that was there as we develop? Because some cities yeah. that I'm studying here are encroaching into forests as they expand. And the question there is like, do you really want to clear cut, build your city and then plant your trees and create everything from scratch? Or do you want to conserve some forest remnants that can really already provide a multitude of ecosystem services and benefits to your residents? And what we're seeing, you know, yeah. again, mentioning this research in Maybridge that I was talking about earlier, is that even small forest fragments in cities can provide a series of ecosystem services because a lot of the trees in these forest fragments are already big, are already established. And like you right. were saying, Eva, there is already wildlife that is, you know, it is a habitat already, a wildlife that is present. So the, the question is more about how do we conserve these forest patches and create corridors, connections, so that wildlife can move, but also people has access to them so that they can benefit from these different services that these forests provide. So there is this too, uh, you know, like, yes, there is a need to create more green spaces in cities that are already established, already built in, already dense. But as cities are expanding and, and cities are new, it, there is also a call 
for conserving yeah. the forests that are there and thinking about how can we design a city that is more biophilic in nature, that is thinking of nature from the get-go, not at the end of the process. You were talking about putting in parks after it's been developed. Our company was involved with helping to build a new park in the community not too far from where I live. And they had never had a park in their community. And this is in the suburbs, heavily built communities. They have street trees, but they have not had a park. And what, how they got this park was somebody had a piece of property that had gone into decline. And they thought if the township bought it from them for less than the market value, they would be happy with that if they turned it over to the borough. And the borough took it on and went for grant money and made it into a park. There was a little bit of pushback because people thought, oh, what, what's a park going to bring to our, our street that we live on? Because it was a small street, but they got rid of two big houses. And I would say it's maybe about an acre, maybe a little less than an acre that they made into this park. And they've already are seeing the benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, not only is it a good stormwater collection area for, you know, a rain garden, but also an area for children to play off the street and a place where the community can actually meet without having all the other distractions, if you will, of the community because they're in a very heavy business district. And I really think places like that are so desperate, desperately needed. And it has to, it has to come from the people who live there. I believe that want it, number one. And once they buy into it, they need the support to be able to, to do what they want to do to make that park. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you were mentioning was the serenity and refuge idea of the green space. And one of the things I've learned um, when I was teaching at the University of Landscape Architects, when you look at the historical significance of landscapes, the first thing that people looked at was a place for refuge in the landscape after feudal wars. And that was really when landscapes started to be developed. And what was the serenity was a refuge of a shelter or a little grotto or a place that was cooling and plants and, you know, a, a little spot. And I think of that and it doesn't have to be big. It, it just needs to make people feel protected and safe in order for there to be a mental health bump, if you will, to make people healthier. So I, I think that some of the things that you're talking about are just, they're resonating with me so much. I feel like we could solve all the world's problems <laughs> if we talked more. <laughs> I really love what, what you're saying, Eva, because you're really speaking to the multifunctional nature of, of urban parks, green spaces, urban forests, because, you know, when you're creating these, these green spaces or these parks, you're really creating a space for, as we were saying earlier, multiple cultures come together in multiple generations as well. So one of the things that I was noticing in Maple Ridge, the study that we set up there was a gradient, an urban rural gradient that allowed us to observe urban forests and the differences from you know, the urban core, like the parks that exist in this very built and dense area of the city, all the way to the per-urban area and the ex-urban area. And of course, these parks 
as they go, as they are closer to the exurban area, they become larger. We, we see different features. But what we observe is that it was really important to have parks in all of these areas and to make them very diverse because the uses of these parks were very different. And, the, you know, the people that would go also differed. The urban parks were really used by elderly and young children quite a lot because for them, mm-hmm. it was just easier to go to the Green Pocket Park, to the mm-hmm. neighborhood park. Yeah. It was also for elderly part of their routine. They would do it every day. And as you were sharing earlier, it was part of also the way to socialize, to meet other people and sit and chat about life and you know find a, find a place for connection. So it was contributing to their mental health, to their social health and to their physical health because they would be walking every day. As we move to the peri-urban area and the ex-urban area, um, people that would go visit these parks tended to be a bit more fitness oriented. So it would be like middle-aged adults that would go there for dog walking. Or if you go to the ex-urban area, they would be visited less frequently. It would be like more like a weekly visit or twice a week versus like the, the very core parks and then in the urban core that were visited every day. Uh, you know, ex-urban parks were visited less frequently, but people would stay longer and plan hikes, of course, and, you know, picnics. And so it was very, very different. The use was very different. And it was important to think of this diversity in terms of who is coming, what for, and how all these generations also interact. Like, it was interesting to see how parks in the in the urban core and in the peri-urban area were sites for multiple generations to meet. And sometimes it worked really well and sometimes there were some clashes and then you had to kind of like figure out, okay, how do we share this space and make it multifunctional so that everyone can enjoy and feel safe. And I think safety, if I may say safety, was one of the key issues that made it for everyone to come or deter people from coming. If they felt that the space was unsafe, especially women, they, they would not come. And they, they were very uh, clear with us saying, well, you know, after a certain time in the day, I don't go to the park because I don't feel safe. So again, like how do we create these spaces so that they feel safe and inclusive? Because you don't know what people have lived in the past. You don't know how they are used to interact with nature from where they are from. And, and so how do we create a space that feels appealing for everyone? That was the number one thing that this community was concerned about is safety. And it's only an acre. It's not that big. On either side, the people who live on either side were concerned. The one woman on the one side lives by herself, and she was concerned for safety. As is often the case, our time has kind of flown by. I did want to ask, you know, we talked about citizen buy-in in an urban community. And for me, I guess, thinking about Every city is going to have its own identity and culture and political will. And I don't know if this is fair or not. I have a sense you've seen a lot of the world's great cities. Is there a community, small or large, that you think of that has shown real positive, forward, progressive thinking when it comes to urban forest policy and park land development and open space preservation? Well, I've definitely seen this approach taken by municipalities that have been very progressive, like the city of Vancouver, uh, Melbourne, that have definitely put urban forests high in their agenda in terms of how they want to see themselves in the future, Singapore as well. Now, in terms of grassroots, 
movements and communities, which I think is what you are referring to. Yeah. What I have seen is networks of grassroots organizations becoming stronger over time, mm -hmm. like C40, mm -hmm. for example, or 8080. 80, 80. I, like, I feel like what I see is that people are eager to learn from each other and to come together to be stronger as a large, larger voice. What I've also observed, I can't, I'm sorry, I cannot pinpoint you onto a specific group that I could say, yeah, go and study this case study, mainly because that has not been part of my research. So it's an interesting question. And I, I definitely think it would be, it's definitely worth <laughs> pursuing there. What I know, just based on my experience of interacting with this group, is a group in, in Chile called Ciudad Emergente, uh, which organizes grassroots movements of tactic urbanism, where they pilot actions in a city. They observe how these actions have generated benefits. And then based on what they measure, they go and then they talk with the government to make that change, that pilot, a permanent intervention. And I think that has been fascinating because it has definitely elevated the voice of the locals to have influence in policymaking. And this, this method that Ciudad Emergente is using has been replicated not only in Chile, where you know they are based, but in multiple cities of Latin America. Right. Uh, that's one. The other thing I've noticed is that also researchers from different regions of the world are coming together to understand the role of urban forests and community coming together. Like I can also speak about the Latin America network of urban foresters coming together and developing a platform that helps us understand what do urban forests mean from the perspective of a Latin American city. Not, you know, the concept that was developed in Europe or North America, but from the realities, the local lived realities of urban forest practitioners and urban forest academics in Latin American cities. So I can speak more to, to that because that I've been familiar, I've been involved with that. Right. I think you gave I think you gave two good examples though, Melbourne and um, Vancouver. A city a cities. that are very cutting edge, like, you know, trying to push that agenda and, and Singapore as well, wanting to become a biophilic city and, you know, have very ambitious targets in terms of how do we integrate urban forests as part of the urban ecosystem, as part of the identity of the city. And I think that's very powerful. The other thing I wanted to speak about in terms of like grassroots movements is what I've been observing, at least in the context of Vancouver, is the people that get organized around urban farming and how producing the food that is local for the city by the city is becoming a movement that I think is contributing to urban forest big time and these two communities are coming closer together. So I definitely think that that is a movement. It's gaining a lot of power. And as we enter our recession, producing your own food and being more connected to land will definitely gain momentum. I definitely think that's going to be on the agenda of many cities moving forward. That'll be the next symposium. <laughs> well, I definitely have conference envy because Canada really innovates and uh, you're always catching my eye. 
not just in, in Vancouver, but University of Toronto. I've been up there for different things and it stretches you out as a arborist, as an urban forester, as a planner and a, as a citizen on the planet. Do you guys know about the CUFC coming up very soon? No. So it's going to be in Charlottetown in uh, October and it's going to bring together all of the researchers, scholars and practitioners working on urban forests in Canada. I don't know if you can attend, if you can come to Canada. It's going to be an in-person conference. And maybe this is a place also for you to get the conversation going. That's a great idea. C-U-F-C. It's in Charlottetown. That's in Prince Edward. Excellent. That's correct. Yeah. It's the Canadian Urban Forest Conference. Right. Okay. Well, we can also put that on the website too. Well, thanks so much. We're so excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we often ask, our guests what your favorite tree is and if you have a favorite tree tell us since you told us about your trip to the rockies maybe your recent urban forest epiphany maybe they're one and the same well i must say that a tree that i'm falling in love with here in the west coast since i moved is the western red cedar because it's a tree well they call it the tree of life first nations call it the tree of life here but it's a tree that keeps giving it's a tree that really provides for definitely the wood in terms of like what you can build with red cedar, the canoes uh, groups here, they build canoes with that, uh, the fiber that you can get from the park. Sure. I, I can make tea of red cedar needles. But for me, it's also the, the connection, the more like spiritual connection and to the land, because as soon as you enter a forest with red cedars, you feel grounded. And I feel like how these trees are connect with each other, how these trees show up in the forest just makes me feel like part of it. And for me, that's, that's a gift. <laughs> that's great. I feel like part of this place, part of this land. Yeah. I'm just so grateful that I'm able to learn more about the trees in this part of the world and inspired for other trees in other parts of the world. Great answer. Well, it has been a pleasure having you on our podcast. We're delighted that you could be with us. And we're going to look forward to more of your research coming out in the future. It's very exciting. Thank you so much for the very rich conversation. I really enjoyed the, the questions today, the, the sharings, and I'll keep listening to your podcasts coming out. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.